the resurrection, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting day for us Christians because it really, as Eric was saying, it's, it's the, the life of our belief. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says that if we don't believe the resurrection, we are to be the most pitied people on earth because our faith is empty and there is no, uh, it's just all a fairy tale. We're just uh, trusting on something that was made up by man. And the question comes, where is our Lord? I uh, was watching uh, beginning of this week and I saw a documentary about a guy from Australia that was claiming to have been a reincarnation of Jesus. And we have so many of these now. I know, I remember at some point we had one in Brazil that claimed to be Jesus and I heard that there's another one in Korea and they have tons and tons of followers. Um, and you know, we need to know the truth what does the scripture says about where Jesus is? You know, how he's going to come back? Is he going to be coming back from a woman again, being born? Um, well, in our text today, we're coming to the book of Acts. And we'll see the, the after, the, the time after the Lord resurrected during those 40 days that he stayed with the disciples. So Acts Acts is an exciting book. I, I wish that we had uh, enough time to, to go even through this book. It's an exciting book that talks about the history of the church, how it all began after Christ was taken up to heaven. And so we're, we're reading through Acts chapter 1, and we're looking through verses 1 through verse 11. It's an exciting text because it talks about the Lord's last instructions to his disciples and not only to them, but to, our, to us as uh, believers. And it's an exciting text because there are great promises that the Lord has left for his beloved. All right, so let's um, open God's word in Acts chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1 through 11. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of these things concerning of the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it that at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, whom has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with gratitudes in our hearts because we know that we couldn't be saved, we couldn't be forgiven of our sins if you hadn't died for us, if you haven't suffered that horrible death. And yet, Lord, we know that we couldn't be saved if you remained in the grave, but you didn't. You rose, and you are alive to this day. You didn't die again but you went up to heaven. Father, I pray that even as we approach this text, you may encourage us and give us comfort as we struggle with still on this side of heaven and even provide hope for those who have no hope. I pray, Lord, that you would give clarity. May your spirit uh, open the, my, our minds, the understanding of our hearts, and may we be encouraged and comforted by your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our text today will speak about the credibility of the witness of the resurrected Christ. It will speak about the, um, the power that was promised through the Holy Spirit and then the exaltation of Christ and why was that so important that he would be taken up. So our first point here is the credible witness of the resurrected Christ. You know, this is the first book, uh, uh, this is the second book that Luke um, authored. Luke was a close companion to the Apostle Paul. He was with him through the missionary journeys, and he was a studious man because he did a great research to be able to write the Gospel of Luke and then now Acts, you know, narrating the time, the times of the Apostles. And here he says that he relates what Jesus began to do and teach in his first book, referring to Luke. And then the second book is the continuation of that story. In this next phrase of salvation history, Luke narrates what Jesus continued to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. The downward drive of God breaking into human history through the incarnation results in the outward drive of the gospel now going through the disciples as, the, as God's Spirit breaks into the believers. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the Spirit leads the disciples to a mission, breakthroughs in the entire world. Luke limits the life and work of Jesus recounted in his first volume to the story of the church and its mission by recalling the dedication he had to this uh, man named Theophilus. He was probably uh, a prominent Christian of the first century, and he might have financed the production and the dissemination of these two works. We move on to verse 2 here. It says that until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. While Jesus instructed thousands of people during his earthly ministry here, his primary and constant learners were the apostles that he has chosen. Equipping them for their foundational ministry was a critical goal of his teaching. Their qualification was simply that the Lord had chosen them for salvation in a unique service. You think about it, those uh, fishermen from Galilee, men uneducated, were the ones that propagated Christianity that we have in the world today. 
He saved them, he commissioned them, he equipped and gifted and taught them so that they could be eyewitnesses to the truth and recipients of the revelation of God. They established the message to the believers are to proclaim the importance of this instruction in preparing these men for finishing the Lord's work cannot be overemphasized. Christ started preaching, but most of his focus was there in Israel. He had some Gentiles that came to believe him, but really it was the apostles that carried on the task of preaching salvation in Christ. Our Lord was building them, building into them the teaching that is later called the Apostles' Doctrine in Acts 2.42, which is the organized body of the truth that, is, that established the church. In, in verse 3, we are reminded that after his suffering, our Lord, our Lord Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I want you to notice here that after his suffering, there is a, a continual dangerous first theologizing uh, the cross and, and not really focusing on, on, on the suffering that he did go through, not only through the cross, but during his life. Yes, there was both physical, spiritual, and emotional suffering that our Lord had to endure for securing redemption to sinners such as you and me. We hear of the horrors of the cross, how he was humiliated, abused, and mauled by the hands of wicked men. As the Apostles' Creed declares, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. We are reminded of his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and I think it is interesting, um, in Israel, this is the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And these trees, they're, they're dated all the way from the first century. So some of these were eyewitness, not eyewitness, they're not alive. <laughs> but they're witnesses that Christ was there when he was praying in anguish. And drops of blood was, um, it was his sweat. So the Garden of Gethsemane is a reminder of his suffering. In Isaiah 53, we know him as a man of sorrows. This and similar phrases were of great importance to the church struggle when attacked by false doctrines which denied the full humanity of Christ, such as Gnosticism or Docetism. They believed that Christ was this superhuman being that really didn't experience physical pain or suffering. But these sub-Christian notions are not dead. Only too often, Christian piety and pastoral ministry is robbed of a major ingredient through Christ's full humanity failing to be confessed. For many believers, Christ is, in many aspects, this kind of superman who hovers somewhere between earth and heaven and in the process never really identifies with our human struggles, temptations, and sufferings. But Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one that it, who tempted, was tempted in every way just as we are. He suffered in our behalf. He died, but he is alive. So the 40 days of reliable witnesses that Jesus was alive, the apostle says, uh, Jesus is with the disciple for 40 days between the, his resurrection and ascension. 
this number 40, actually it's important in scripture. You see a lot of number 40s being mentioned for other significant periods in the Bible. Most importantly, the number recalls the times of preparation. So 40 is kind of a time of preparation. Moses spent 40 days on Sinai receiving the law in Exodus 34, 28. Elijah visited, visited Horeb on a 40-day journey being refreshed before returning to work. And Jesus, you will remember, he spent 40 days, where? In the wilderness, undergoing temptation before beginning his ministry. In Luke 4, 2, we read that. So now Jesus spent 40 days teaching the disciples, preparing them for this new ministry that is about to begin. Jesus focused on the two main things during this time. It says that he was, um, verse 3 here, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and he's speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. So two things he says here. One is providing the disciples with proof that he is indeed alive, and two, teaching them about the kingdom of God. The apostolic ministry is grounded in the eyewitness Eyewitnesses' testimony of the disciples. When they seek to choose a replacement for Judas, Peter insists that, so how about we go there to uh, chapter 1, verse 21, 22. So there was a special requirement for those that would be called apostles. They had to be an eyewitness. They had seen the Lord. Verse 21, 22, when Peter establishes the... um, the requirement. He says, therefore, it is necessary that one of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and was in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So when Judas committed suicide and and they were, they were no longer 12 and only 11. The apostles decided to have another one added to their group. But there was a requirement. They needed to be eyewitnesses from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus all the way you know, through his resurrection and he being taken up. Besides, the original disciples, Luke, is careful to show that Paul's ministry is no less founded in a personal encounter with the risen Lord. We're not going to read there, but if you read uh, Paul's conversion. He, say, he sees the risen Lord. He appears to him. And for three years, like the other apostles, he was trained by the Lord Jesus. Now we have to understand that the resurrection from the dead was no less controversial and no easier to believe in the first century than it is today. If you would hear of someone coming back to, from life, not those stories that we hear of someone you know, being, oh, they spent 15 minutes in heaven or whatever it was, but for three days, being dead and coming back to life, it would be astounding and very little, you know, few people would believe that. In the same way in the first century, when Paul speaks of the resurrection at the Areopagus at Athens in Greece, the people started mocking him. However, the truth that of Jesus as King, the resurrected Lord who came to fulfill the Old Testament promises, who suffered, who died, and arose, and now reigns in heaven, is vital for proclaiming the message of the gospel 
This is no spiritual or disembodied soul. Jesus did have a physical body after his resurrection. It was not just a spirit roaming around. Jesus was raised from the dead as a physical man. And although his resurrection body was different, he was able to do things that we cannot do. He was able to go through walls or you know, disappear at will as it somehow not subject to physical obstacles, but transcends common and mortal existence. It is still, still a real physical body. So much so that he, had, he even had to give proof. So let's go to Luke 24. Jesus proved to them that he had a physical body. Luke 24 and verse 39 Luke 24, 39. The apostles are troubled and afraid if he's just a spirit. And what does he say to them? Verse 39, see my hands and see my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And he even ate with them. A spirit doesn't eat. And he showed proof that he was indeed alive and had a physical body. Although we do not know all the details of the resurrection body, we should grasp the fact that after the resurrection, Jesus is more than an ordinarily embodied soul. In the resurrection, Jesus is the forerunner of a new, transformed, and immortal humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, that um, Eric was just reading to us, it talks about our resurrection being similar to Jesus' resurrection. That he was the forerunner. He was the one that initiated that. The foundation of the very gospel that we believe, 1 Corinthians 15, um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. Here's the, the content of the gospel that Paul was preaching. He says, For I deliver to you as of first most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. And then, who all saw him, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, um, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and of last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You can conjure up 500 plus people coming up with a vision <laughs> and, and believing a mirage. He was real, really alive. And these people saw, he touched, they, they touched him, they spoke with him, they ate with him during that time. Now, second here, the teaching about the kingdom, the teaching about the kingdom. As it is in the gospel, the kingdom of God refers to the Lord's rule and reign. The kingdom is not localized with the, the borders and made up with a particular people connected politi politically, culturally, and ethically, but is established in the lives of men and women through the power of the gospel. In Luke 13, 18 to 19, this, it's called the mustard seed. 
That's how really it started. The, this kingdom that he was creating now, it wasn't just limited to geographical location as the kingdom of Israel. That appeared insignificant at the beginning, but it will have an unimaginable ending. The key is to see that this unimaginable ending even in the insignificance of the kingdom's beginning. Such visions come from faith alone. People, you know, if you were told that a, a movement would start in the world and it will take up, every, you know, the whole entire world without the technology that we have today, it would have been hard to believe. But that was the kingdom of God. The kingdom features a leader who suffers, who preaches nonviolence and self-deprecation, urging his followers to give up the right of their own lives and to live instead for his sake and for the sake of others. What, what philosophy would be accepted in this world? This kingdom is initially led by a group of his followers who for the most part do not come from high income or particular educated families. You know, there was one apostle that was well-educated and was Paul, but even in, in, he says in his letters that his presence wasn't very impressive. He was good in writing, but in person, he wasn't very appealing. Yet, if the beginnings of this kingdom appear insignificant, this is nothing compared to this unimaginable power. The king rises from the dead, ascends through the throne, send his power into the lives of his followers and enables and emboldens them to speak openly of him and to offer free entry into his eternal kingdom. Those who believe the message enter the kingdom that one day will be revealed as an uncontainable in time and space when the king returns. And this kingdom, Luke traces out in Acts, in the book of Acts, you'll see the expansion of this kingdom. During the church age, then God mediates this kingdom rule through believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit and obedient to the word. So the, you remember Jesus teaching in the gospels, he all, always talks about, you know, the kingdom is already here and yet not yet. <laughs> he is present in our hearts, but physically he's not yet present in this world to rule, but he will one day. As um, participants of this kingdom. That's why Peter calls the believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Today, Jesus Christ does not manifest himself physically and visibly to believers. Jesus said to Thomas, and uh, Thomas, Apostle Thomas in John 20, 29, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. He said that blessed are they who did not see and yet they believed. And though he's talking about us. We didn't see the resurrected Lord. He is already taken up to heaven. While Peter wrote, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him and you greatly rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8 his manifestation to us is no less real, however. He is alive, and we believe his resurrection. Moving on to verse 4 here of Acts chapter 1. The commission, we're told about the commission of the witness of the resurrected Christ. They're now commissioned to do this task. 
First, we see the need to trust in God's timing. In verse 6, we read that the disciples posed the question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples' question about restoring the kingdom to Israel puts forward this notion at the very beginning. Perhaps they remember Jesus' promises that they would one day sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, given in Luke 22, 30. Now they assume this new role that is imminent. They may think that the coming of the Spirit will be accompanied by the coming of the kingdom. I mean, he's been teaching them about the kingdom, of the spiritual kingdom of God, but also the physical kingdom. Um, Jesus does not reprimand the disciples, and we have seen that before in Luke 24, right? And calling them slow of heart. You don't understand this. I already explained this to you. But this time he doesn't, because their, their question is fair. I mean, he came, he suffered, he died. Now, will he rule over the people of Israel? This was not a lack of understanding as they did in Luke 24, 25, when Jesus said how foolish you are and it's slow to believe. Luke uses this, their question to raise an important issue and not to introduce their spiritual dullness. The fulfillment of the promises cited in Luke um, is now taking place. But they will not be fulfilled in a way that the disciples might expect or prefer. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with establishing Israel as a mighty kingdom that will rule the world with an iron fist as Rome does. We're just hoping for a new power to come into place. What is most important for Luke is that their query highlights the Old Testament promise of Isaiah 49.6. So Isaiah 49, 6 says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was the fulfillment at this point. The coming of the Holy Spirit will restore Israel's primary vocation to be a light to the nations. And as the disciples spread the good news of God's kingdom. The question also gives Jesus the opportunity to remind them that they cannot know the times and seasons. As Jesus said here, um, it is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed for his own authority. They are not to be concerned about the schedule of history, but to be busy about their tasks God's purposes will be accomplished according to God's timing, which pays no attention to calendars. Jesus, the true servant of Yahweh, will unite Israel to be a light for the nations, as Isaiah 49, 6 says, through the witness of his empowered spirit, uh, empowered disciples by the spirit. Knowing this specific timeline is outside of the apostolic brief. The times or seasons rest with the Father. It does not seem to take long for the disciples fully to understand and embrace what Jesus is saying. So the timing of this consum- the consummation of the age is known by God the Father alone. And he will bring it about according to his divine counsel. New Testament teaching in regard to our strictly limited knowledge of this age lends squarely in the arena of faith. 
I mean, we, we hear predictions again and again, people trying to say, oh, he's coming this next year. This is a prophecy. You know, the, the, world, the, the end of the world is coming this date. And every time they fail with those predictions because it is not for us to know the epoch and the times. The commentator says, only by believing that the time is set by God can the disciples go out both with confidence. God is in control, not us. And urgency, God will certainly bring everything that he appointed in the end. The disciples will not receive a heavily navigation software if that's what they were hoping for. Where are we? The map, the map to root the end of times they will receive something better. The last recorded words of, from Jesus in Luke's gospel is concerned with the witness and the coming of the Spirit. So this leads us to the next point. But before we get there, I wanted to... Well, so this was the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Mount of Olives in Israel. They built a big church there. And this is the area where Gethsemane is. Bethany is right behind here at the Mount of Olives. And we'll come back here in a little bit. Because this is the place where Jesus is going to go up from heaven. Um, so you can see a little bit there. So this is the Mount of Olives. And Bethany right here. This is the temple. So everything that happened here when Jesus gave the discourse was all facing the temple. Um, all right. So this was the part that I want to show you. So the Passover was the date where Jesus died. And then he was in the grave for three days. He was dead and he was buried for three days. And he was risen at the third day. And then 40 days between his ascension and, um, and the, the time that he was risen. Counting 50 days, so in the Jewish calendar, had the Passover and the day of Pentecost. It was another feast that they had, totaling 50 days. So Jesus said that many not many days from now, you would receive the Holy Spirit. So he's going to go up, and the Spirit is going to come down to the apostles. All right. <clears throat> the need for the power to witness. In verse 8, we read here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Opening your Bible to Luke chapter 24, 49, 48 and 49, there's a lot of parallels. So really, Luke, one of the Gospels that talk about the ascension, the other Gospels don't mention that as much, and some texts might have some insertions there that include that ascension, but Luke is the main one. Um, Luke 24, we're looking at um, verse 48, 49, he gives the same promise. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And it says in verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hand and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So when Jesus said that they are going to be witnesses, the disciples are not to go off on their own esteem. You know, we're going to do this on our own power. 
Because earlier Jesus had instructed them to wait in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power on high. Remember Peter's boldness? Lord, I will go wherever you go. Even if you have to die, I'll die. A few days later, what happens? He denies him three times before a servant girl that couldn't harm him. These fishermen, poor men, uneducated, didn't have power on their own. God had to send power so that his name would be exalted. It's the same way today for us. We have no power to proclaim his word if it is not from him. The success of their witnesses will not be due to their own strength, but to the power of God because it is God's mission, not theirs. Witnesses applied almost exclusively to the the twelve as an eyewitnesses as eyewitnesses who were with Jesus throughout his ministry. They ensured the certainty of the tradition handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servant of our Lord, as in Luke one two says. The power they will receive from the Holy Spirit is not a power that enables them to conquer. This is not the kind of kingdom or to dominate others. Jesus commissions them not to build empires, but to confront empires with the truth of the gospel that God is king. Any time in history that we saw Christianity trying to do that, install as a kingdom, it was a, was a fail. That was not God's intention. They will receive power only to spread the gospel through the, throughout the world. This power does not bring a swift, swift victory over evil kingdoms. Victory will be won, won through the seeming defeat. Most of these witness, and the word for witness is uh, martyr, mar- martyrs in, in Greek, they became martyrs. So much so that today the word martyr is known someone that have given up their blood for the sake of, of their uh, witnessing the gospel. Magnificent comparison to this uh, sense of promise that they would be empower, empowered with the Spirit was also the baptism of Jesus. Remember before he started his ministry, before his three years of ministry here on earth, our Lord was obviously in perfect accord and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and yet at the moment of his baptism, The scripture says that heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. This was the emblematic of the fullness of the power he would receive from the Spirit to do his earthly work. Jesus set up the example even to his disciples. All the miracles, all the things that he performed, it was through the power of the Spirit. It wasn't on his own strength, though he had it. Luke 4, 18 to 21 says that, um, quoting from um, in his first sermon, Luke 4, 18 to 21, if you want to see there, the Lord comes to the synagogue and he opens the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable ear of the Lord. Luke includes Jesus' interpretation of the text, leaving the reader little reason to doubt the implication today is scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4.21, Jesus places himself unequivocally in the place of the anointed one who will bring the old covenant promises to fulfillment. 
Now in Acts, the disciples will receive the Spirit from Jesus to equip them to be his witness. The anointed sends his anointed witnesses to proclaim. They will reach the world with the same message that Jesus has come, but he has now died, risen, and ascended to heaven. That is the message that we proclaim. Jesus also tells the disciples where they will take this spirit-empowered witness. His geographical trajectory is more than a series of concentric circles in a map of work mission. He's giving, you know, where they were initially. They were in Jerusalem, and then we're moving from Jerusalem to Judea, and then to Samaria, to the northern kingdom of Israel. As they fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of restoring the kingdom and lighten up the world as ambassadors of King Jesus. What is the ends of the earth, though? What, what does that mean? It does not refer to Rome, though it was the, the empire at that time, where Luke's account ends. The mission will not end there. Rome, in Luke's day, is the center of the empire, and all the roads lead from it to the ends of the earth. It is a westward extent. The ends of the earth refer generally to Spain, and then um, specifically to the region around Gades, west of Gibraltar. For Luke, however, signifies a proclamation of the gospel to all people. People like me in Brazil heard the gospel. People in Alaska heard the gospel, and everywhere in the world this word is being proclaimed. While this promise of power is primarily to the apostles, it also has an implication for us as believers that we have been empowered with the same spirit to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. It is the fulfillment of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, records God's promise for all who are in the new covenant. They would be sprinkled. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will be, you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I remember just reading this for Thessalonians. They turned away from their idols and turned to Christ. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There was to come a fullness of the spirit and in some unique way in the new covenant, and for all believers, we are empowered to fulfill the mission given in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go and make disciples, therefore, of all the world, in all the world until the end of the age. You know, I wanted to stop here because sometimes I hear Christians just saying, well, I, I, just, I just don't know how to, to share the gospel. Or, I don't know, I'm afraid that someone is going to ask me a deep theological question that I can't answer. You know, there is a sense in which Dr. MacArthur says that believers do not even choose whether or not to be witness. We are witnesses. The only question is how effective witness we are. We should be looking for our testimony, as Dr. MacArthur says, if the church is to reach the lost world with the good news of the gospel, believers must sanctify Christ as their Lord in their hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks them to give an account for the hope that is in them. People will ask, what do you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? 
our testimony can prevent people from coming from Christ. The main thing is to those that are afraid of, of being, of not witnessing, we have to be reminded that um, when we hear those excuses, God does not call all Christians to be scholars or pastors. You don't need to be a theologian to be able to witness. You just need to tell people what Christ has done for you. Because he has empowered you, it is not you, it is the spirit within you. Jesus even said that he'll put the words in our mouths to witness. But apart from the spirit, we can do nothing. I, this reminds me of a, a Christian biography, John Wesley. I don't know if how many of you know, heard of John Wesley. He came to Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, at, to serve as a missionary, to proclaim Christ. During that time, he acknowledged that he did not know what, what he meant, what meant to have a personal relationship with the Lord. And he served only out of obligation and duty. He stayed in Savannah for two years, but at the end of this time, his ministry amounted to nothing as he exited with a romantic scandal. Three years later, he comes back to England and he attended a public reading of Romans. And it finally experienced the God work in his heart. And he was saved by faith in Christ. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I felt that I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. And then I testified to all there what I now felt in my heart. What he believed, he was now proclaiming to those that didn't believe. You and I have the same power given by the Spirit. Moving on here, and our last point, the exaltation of the resurrected Christ, the exaltation of the resurrection Christ. Um, so as we saw there in that first chart, we, we see that he will, they're all there in the Mount of Olives, and he's going to be ascending and then sending the Spirit in 10 days. He said, not many days from now. He was taken up before their very eyes. Jesus' ascension marks the point where the physically resurrected Jesus leaves his disciples. It is the culmination of the resurrection appearances and the prelude to sending of the Spirit. They're not left in a lurch having to strike on their own. If that were the case, they would have failed horribly. Jesus' ascension is vital as a visible proof of, God, of his vindication by God. The ascension may be confusing to modern readers. Why did he have to leave? The bodily resurrection requires a bodily ascension, and the ascension explains the disappearance of Jesus' physical body. You know, you, you, you hear all these archaeological excavations and they're trying to find the bones of Jesus. It's not here. <laughs> he was taken up. You can't find it. The ascension marks the return of Christ to his Father and provides confirmation of his promised exaltation by God. It validates his present lordship and glory. Open your Bibles to Philippians 2. You know, Christ came to earth in his incarnation. He was humbled. He left the glories of heaven and made himself a man. He was humbled. But he will be exalted. So the, really the ascension has to do with ex exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, 
if you pick up from uh, verse 5, because it's talking to us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He could have used his powers when he was here on earth. He could have been glorious. He could have had a, a glorious body, but he didn't but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, really, that's what that word is, and made, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Now, here's the exaltation. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as a high priest, a perfect high priest that intercedes in our behalf, and he's exalted. I mean, you, you read about Stephen being coming to the Lord, and, and, and at his death, what does he see? I see him in the throne, and he's standing up to receive me. He's high and exalted now. He's not that humble, suffering servant as he, as he first came. He's exalted. Um, Ephesians 4.10 also states that he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens so that he might fill all things. Jesus' incarnation, his earthly ministry was his condescension, but his ascension was his exaltation. It's interesting that in Jesus going up, the disciples are look, looking up and they keep on looking. They have witnessed this supernatural event unlike any other they've seen before. Not even the dep departure of Enoch or Elijah is to compare with this. And then the angels come and they summon their attention. Men of Galilee, why do you look into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up um, into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him to go up to heaven. We should note that the appearance of a cloud at Jesus' ascension here, there's a symbolical element of these clouds, um, which is in, it's where heaven and earth meet. Clouds in the scripture are often symbolic of God's presence. In Exodus, in the Exodus narrative, you, you hear all the time about cloud that follow the people, Exodus 14.19, uh, from Egypt, all the way from Egypt to Sinai. God speaks to Moses from a cloud on Sinai. The cloud covers the tent of meeting when God is talking to Moses in the tabernacle. Now, such symbolism is not lost in the gospel writers. It is used also there. The climatic meeting of heaven and earth takes place around the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. When attention is shifting from Jerusalem to the cross, at the transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before his apostles, with nothing less than divine heavenly dimension breaking into the earthly sphere, a cloud appears. And then Moses and Elijah appears there in that cloud. And then the disciples, it, it comes this voice from that cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Father, Jesus' second coming is described as the son of man is coming in a cloud with power and 
great glory. So these clouds remind us that he's coming back and he's going to come back on those clouds. The Son of Man is coming in a cloud with great power, with power and great glory. Later, Matthew includes uh, the mention of the clouds during Jesus' trial. Um, when he's talking to um, Caiaphas, he says, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Again, his exaltation is already predicting here and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, 64. What Jesus means is how, he, how he's heard is evident. Caiaphas' response, he responds, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. He said that he was going to be exalted. There was no mistaking. He is God, and he's going to be exalted. Comparing the ascension of Luke, we find out that these takes place on the Mount of Olives. I think I showed you before there. So they were near Bethany, so this is the Mount of Olives, and it says that that's where he ascended. Um, Luke took, says it took place in the Mount of Olives, commonly referred to um, as Mount Olivet. It says it's a Sabbath, day, Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. So in the map, I showed you how close it is. You know, it's the Kindrum Valley. It's about... I don't know, I'm going to say 15 minutes walk from the temple to um, Temple Mount. I don't know. My professor walked pretty fast, so <laughs> it might take some more time to get there. Uh, but they were near Bethany. That's where it took place. Now, there's something. That here was a frequent setting for Jesus and his disciples um, where he did the Olivet Discourse, the sermon, um, the Olivet Discourse. And Zechariah describes the Mount of Olives as the place from which God will fight against the nations that exiled Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.4, uh, if you don't need to open there, but take note so you can look at for yourself, there's a prophecy. It says that on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So, um, so here's the temple, here's the Mount of Olives, so it's at east of the Mount of Olives, and it says the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east, from east to west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward, and the other half of the mount southward. There is an interesting uh, fact here, ge geographical fact, there is a fault line there was found out in 1964. An earthquake is about to happen in that area where Christ is going to come back and set his foot there on the top of the mountain is going to split half. The place Zechariah's apocalyptic vision of judgment against the nation is now sending point from bringing blessing to the nations through the gospel. The angels went to say, this Jesus who has been taken up from heaven, uh, from you to heaven, will come in the same way that he, has that he has left. The promise, and I'll go back there to the Mount of Olives, the promise of Zechariah 14.4 will come to pass, namely that the Messiah will return to the Mount of Olives. The angels stress this, that the same Jesus whom they have washed uh, ascending, would one day return in the same way that he did. 
He will return to his with his glorified body, accompanied with clouds. Daniel 7, 13, 14 also talks about that ascension. Now, Christ's return will happen in two stages. And I, I just want to make a clarification here for those of us um, who are not familiar. So he ascended, and this is the church age where we're living. When he comes back, for the first time, he's going to come back to his church to rapture his church. We're going to meet him in the air. He's not going to set his foot on earth. And then there'll be the judgment seat of Christ for those who believe. And seven years of celebrating with the Lord the, the supper of the Lamb. And then here on earth, there'll be tribulation. But Christ is coming back again. That's his second coming with us, with glorified bodies, those who have believed We'll come back with him, and he's going to sit in the Mount of Olives and split it in two and wage war against the nations at that point. So this is the return of Christ. Now, this becomes a compelling motive for us. No one knows when he will come, but everyone must live in anticipation that could be in our lifetime. Paul, he, he thought, you know, today is closer than it was yesterday. And if he said that in the first century... I mean, we're 2,000 years into this. I'm pretty sure he's coming pretty soon. I don't know when. The truth that Christ will return provides a powerful motive to serve him. This is an encouragement to us. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And in Revelation 22:12, the Lord Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Believers must serve Christ faithfully in light of his imminent return. He has empowered us to preach this gospel. In Revelation 16, 15, Jesus warned, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. We want to be clothed in his righteousness. For those who haven't believed, you have an opportunity and a chance to accept his sacrifice and trust him as your savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your exaltation. How wonderful, Lord, you are that you came to undeserving sinners such as we to give your son in our behalf. Lord, thank you for the great salvation that was given, for the witness of his resurrection that is undoubt undoubtedly true. Lord, we are thankful for the spirit that you gave us to witness, and I pray, Lord, give us courage, give us boldness, so that many may be saved and know you, what a great God you are, what a kind and gracious, loving Father you are, so that they might not experience your, half, your wrath that is about to come on this earth. But I pray for hope as we go through the disappointments of this life that this is not yet done, that is not yet finished. There is great glory, there is great hope of celebrating the Supper of the Lamb, and we are eager for that. We pray these in Jesus' name.